This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. I'm Max Flight. We're on hiatus for the summer of 2023, and as you know, we don't like leaving you without an Airplane Geeks episode. So, we have a replay from the past. This one is Igor Sikorsky III from episode 144. Igor is the grandson of Igor Sikorsky, who many consider to be the father of the helicopter industry. Igor flies a Skyhawk on floats, and he and his wife Karen operate the Bradford Camps in the North Main Woods. It's a beautiful sporting camp, 50 miles from the nearest paved road. In episode 144, my co-hosts were David Vanderhoof, Dan Webb, and Chris Mano, substituting for Rob Mark. Here's our conversation. Joining us as our guest on this episode of the Airplane Geeks podcast is Igor Sikorsky III. Welcome to the show, Igor. It's very nice to be here, Max. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, let's start with you, and then we'll talk about your grandfather. Now, you and I met a few years ago, and I remember you told me you had two dreams in life. You told me that you wanted to become a pilot, and you wanted to run a sporting camp. And you've accomplished uh, both, but they're, they're kind of a bit interrelated. Tell us a little bit about the Bradford camps. It is a dream come true for me. We're just about to enter our 16th year. The Bradford camps is a very traditional remote sporting camp in northern Maine. It's 50 miles away from the nearest town, nearest paved road. We generate our own power. We uh, have satellite telephone, and, and it's a traditional hunting and fishing camp. It was a childhood dream, again, of right. being the guide and the uh, proprietor of, of a place like that. Your preferred mode for getting there is your float plane, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. How long have you been a pilot? Well, I have wanted to be a pilot since, you know, the earliest days of folding a paper airplane. But um, <laughs> it just seemed to, you know, I finally took the bull by the horns, I guess, when I was about 29 and a half years old. And I thought to myself, I can't turn 30 without taking a flight lesson. Great. And it was pretty much that day that I went in and made a reservation to, to uh, learn how to fly. And, and what do you fly? Uh, I fly Skyhawk. It's straight floats. I actually don't even switch over to wheels. I just leave it in a hangar in the winter. It's pretty highly adorned. It's got a 180-horse engine. They're big floats. I have close to 1,000 pounds useful on it, so it's a good workhorse. You know, Igor, in the last couple of episodes, there's actually been a little bit of a conversation about float planes and the transition from a, you know, a standard airplane to, to one with, uh, with floats. Yep. And, I mean, did you start out right from the beginning with floats, or did you transition... No. Yeah, I just went the normal route of, you know, I got ended up with 60 hours and a 150. Right. You know, keep it cheap and learn the basics. And that was certainly, you know, had its difficulties learning that, like everybody knows. And from there, I put some time in a Satabria tailwheel, which I kind of found even harder, hmm. um, even knowing how to fly. You know, there's just a lot more to it. And then the float plane is even that much more water ops or you know, there's so much going on. You just don't have any breaks, and you got to make a lot of decisions way ahead of time. So it's really interesting flying. How many hours did it take you to, to do the transition? How many flying hours do you think before you oh. came really proficient with the floats? Oh, well, uh, the float rating is really a pretty simple six to eight hour course, and I 
can't recall exactly what I went through, but it's probably mm. something like, you know, between six and 10 hours, you know, one hour a week here and there. But I uh, learned from a fellow on the Merrimack River in Massachusetts, and he was not willing to let anybody solo in his plane. So I got the rating and, uh, you know, I was either flying with him or with the check ride guy. And, and then I put that away until about eight years later when I actually bought a flow plane. And my first solo in a flow plane was flying back to camp in my Skyhawk. Fantastic. Chris, have you ever flown on floats? No, and I, I have heard, and it, it's common knowledge, it's probably the most difficult rating you can get because there are so many variables, everything from runway heading and, as you said, no brakes, and uh, I just can't even imagine. That must be quite a challenge. I'd, I'd love to see that. I don't think I want to <laughs> undertake that myself, and I know several who have, and they've all said it's a very difficult course to do and to master and to become more than proficient to, yeah. to be good at it. So, no, that's that's amazing. Interesting. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a great exercise, even if you don't use it. I think it makes your all of your skills as a regular pilot uh, better. You know, you just. It, it, I could see where that would do that because you have to focus on all the essentials. There's no runway heading. You know, there, there's no downwind. Right. I mean, you you have to make those decisions. Plus, I, I imagine you have a lot of orographic interference from the topography around whatever water body there is, and that is going to be some very weird thermals, very weird currents. Uh, that'd be very yep. unpredictable. That's right, Chris. And really, you're never landing on a runway. You are yeah. making your own runway every time you land. Uh, you, you could be landing in familiar water, and you, you have to keep your eye out for, you know, some half-submerged log that could be there. And if the wind's blowing, then you have waves. You have different landing techniques, uh, different attitudes you have to hold for different, you know, approaches and takeoffs to try not to beat your airplane up too much when it's windy. Hmm. I bet there's a, a lot of weird uh, wind phenomena that are associated with open water as well. Yes and no, I, I guess. You know, you don't – it depends. Uh, if you're landing in a river, which happens a lot, you know, then you're, you could be in uh, a treed corridor that's narrower than your average runway also. So, yeah, you get a lot of wind shear. I don't get into really tight stuff myself, but, you know, there's certainly many places in, in the bush where uh, the runway is not straight. You know, the well, river I, takes a curve. I, I can't imagine what factor there is when you have a, a river running whichever direction it's running as far as landing and taking off. I mean, how do you yep. get the takeoff speed? You know, ground speed is ground speed. It's not moving, but you're in a moving fluid body. How does that work? Oh, uh, we, 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 that's the thing you can talk about forever and ever in the hangar. You know, is it better <laughs> to take off into the wind downstream or, you know, do you want to, you know, and, and it really just varies. Every takeoff is different and you just have to make those decisions based on a lot of different factors. And, and it, it becomes like anything, it becomes, you know, uh, something that you're very familiar with and comfortable with and you stay within your comfort zone. Sounds like more of an art than a science. And so you yeah, have to be does, pretty huh? good at it to make sure you have the clearances and all, you know, obstacle clearances, things like that. When you have a moving runway, essentially. Absolutely. And, you know, the more you, I, I've got a thousand hours. I'm a very, what I call myself a low time pilot compared to all these pilots I associate with and, and, uh, uh, stuff. But 800 of that is on floats in the North main woods. So <laughs> it's, it, it is, I think it's just a comfort level that, that you end up gaining. And, you know, I'm not doing, uh, I'm not flying into a lot of unfamiliar waters, but I do from time to time. And that, that's another thing. If you land on a lake that, has some submerged rocks and shallow stuff you you have to fly over it a lot and figure out how you're going to fly out of there you can't just mm. land on what you know is good you got to remember what it's going to look like when you're on the ground and how you're going to 
can get out of these waters. Yeah, so that's fascinating. Stuff to think about. Yeah, and you essentially have no nav aids. There's simply no vasi. There's nothing, right? There aren't. But I'll tell you what. I I have a Garmin 396. Um, mm-hmm. I just loaded it with Topo, and it's it's really pretty bomb proof. Um, you know, it's a VFR tool, but it has so much information. I load it with weather. Um, you know, the weather's 10 minutes old or whatever, but it's still there. You can tell when the front's coming. Hmm. But yeah, no, you're right. I'm, it's, it's all VFR flying that I do. And, uh, and that's, you know, for me, the joy of flying anyways. Can you do any night operations in the, at all or? Uh, you know, you can, um, I'm a 135 pilot. Um, I'm not certificated for night ops because I'm a VFR, but, mm-hmm. um, full moon, you can see plenty, you know, mm-hmm. th- there's a lot out there. Um, um, so, but generally people just stay away from that. I mean, you can't, you can't make out bad stuff on the water. So you yeah. know, it's not worth it. Fascinating. Yep. Now, Igor, I, when I visited the Bradford camps, it was for yep. your Sikorsky weekend. Tell our right. listeners uh, ab- about that three-day weekend. Well, um, as uh, as you probably have figured out, and, and I know you know, Max, but um, I am the grandson of Igor Sikorsky, proud to be. And when we took over the camps, um, it also was about the beginning of me really delving into his history and kind of falling in love with that side of my family and my heritage. And, and it's, it's a great story to share with people. So it's become a pretty popular thing for flow plane pilots to fly into and just interested people to drive up. I think you probably drove up when you came. That's right. That's, about uh, four hours on dirt logging roads. It was, yeah. uh, it was quite exciting. It was it's, it, kind it's of its own long, adventure. That's right. It's a long driveway. That's what I like to call it. <laughs> yes. uh, it's three moose in from town. That's right. But, and so, yeah, it, I have a, um, a slideshow type thing and I share with uh, the, the visitors that we get that, um, of his history. He had a very uh, significant career in Russia as a aircraft designer. He built the world's first multiple engine aircraft and the world's first enclosed cockpit aircraft, which are significant achievements. World War I, um, for a very large part of World War I, the largest aircraft were Sikorsky's flying off the Russian fields. I think a lot of people don't realize that. That's right. Yeah, it, it, uh, yeah. People think of Sikorsky as the father of the helicopter, and that's very true. Right. Um, while there were other helicopters that had flown before him, he really solved the problem and you know dedicated the second half of his life to that. Um, but he also had not only in Russia his career there, but he had a significant career in America building airplanes for Pan Am Airways. He built uh, the first commercial aircraft for the Atlantic and Pacific crossings and. South American travel, um, large flying boats. And, right. Uh, so, yeah, there's really three careers uh, of his life, which he uh, <laughs> was very deeply involved with and highly successful at and humble all the way along, which is maybe one of the more interesting parts of him as a person. Yeah, that's easy to pick up on. I was I was looking at a, uh, a write-up by Judy Neal. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Judy Neal, but she writes about um, – People who've been influential in, in a variety of different ways. And yeah. uh, I, I thought it was interesting. She wrote, I'll just read this uh, little, little yeah. two paragraphs. She said, I learned about Igor Sikorsky when I taught an MBA course at Sikorsky. None of the young engineers and managers had ever met Mr. Sikorsky. He died 30 years ago. Yet when they spoke of him, their voices were filled with awe and a few had eyes that glistened with tears. 
you could feel a deep sense of love and respect for the man who founded the company they worked for. I think it's amazing that you know you'd have that kind of reaction for someone who had been gone for for thirty years at the at the time that that was written. I can believe that with all my heart. I actually just visited the Sikorsky plant last weekend, and um, I have the wonderful privilege of being able to take a tour through the plant and see my grandfather's office, which is kept basically exactly the way it was when he worked there, which, by the way, he worked there up until 82 years old, the day he died. Um, My gosh. So, yeah. um, And definitely that feeling still pervades at the it's a it's a workplace full of people that still have the same vision and sense of sensitivity that that he did when he when he worked there. there's some really fun interesting stories about him as a leader sure there yeah so I, I kind of uh, view the the history as it's kind of occurring in different segments i mean there was sort of uh, your grandfather in russia and then immigrating to the united states and uh, I guess attempting to uh, develop the helicopter and, and having some difficulty with it, then going on to uh, fixed wing airplanes and then coming back to the helicopter. Is, are, are those kind of discrete phases? Is that the way to think of it? Absolutely. In fact, the first aircraft, the first two aircraft that he built um, to get the timeline correct were two helicopters in Russia, oh. grossly underpowered, grossly inadequate in technology and grossly overweight, but he very lovingly uh, would say that they produced all of the uh, characteristics of today's modern helicopter. In his later years, he'd say they produced huge clouds of smoke, they were very loud, <laughs> and they had huh. many fascinating vibrations. I love that one. Yeah. And uh, But they had one technical difficulty they would not fly. And so realizing that the helicopter was not of age, in Russia in mm-hmm. 1909 and 10, he moved on to fixed wing, and that was his career in Russia. Uh, the revolution came along, certainly on the wrong side of the revolution. He was building aircraft for the military and new generals and uh, involved a little bit militarily, but mostly in a design standpoint. Left Russia, penniless, came to America, very small knowledge of the English language, and uh, in short order, proceeded to build one-at-a-time designs on Long Island, eventually gaining success after about five years building float planes or seaplanes, mm-hmm. flying boats. And then uh, uh, flying boats were a really short-lived part of aviation. They were maybe a 10-year span, basically a crossover time, waiting for airports to be built. And, right. and, and that's uh, why they were popular initially, correct, is that yeah, there weren't right. airports, there weren't airports and and other than the you know the open water that was used as the as the airport yep and major cities were all built on big waters if you think about it there was a airport at the waiting right there so it filled a perfect niche uh, but only for a short while and when the orders dropped off for these big flying boats he actually there was a particular day when a an officer of United Aircraft at the time that owned Sikorsky. Sikorsky, my grandfather sold quickly as soon as possible the operating expenses, the operating uh, part of the company, and became the chief engineer. That was uh, a tremendous drag for him to have to manage a company. So, uh, and they 
they came to him and a man came to him and said, you know, we are going to have to close your company. There are no orders for these flying boats anymore. And uh, with a twinkle in his eye, uh, he looked across the table, not daunted at all. And he said, I have one more idea that I would like to propose. Mm -hmm. And an hour later, he had this officer of the company who was actually walked into his office to let my grandfather go. Mm. An hour later, he was walked back to the president's office and said, no, we're not letting him go. We do have to keep him. He has a, he's working on the next phase, the helicopter. Mm. I, I think when I, when I met you, you described it as, as kind of uh, uh, your grandfather first had to figure out how to, how to build a helicopter, and then he had to figure out how to fly it. Correct. He would often say that early aviation was very efficient at weeding out the poor engineers. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it's quite true, um, but you're right. In helicopters, in airplanes that he built in the early years in Russia, he had no knowledge of how to design an aircraft. It was six years after the Wright brothers had flown. And think about it, in Russia, news didn't get to Russia until four of those years had gone by. Hmm. Uh, and so he also had to figure out how to build an airplane without having ever built an airplane before. He's, you know, going to the hardware store and getting piano wire and um, had to make his own dope to paint the canvas of the wings to shrink the wings. Right. And, you know, had to design all this stuff and didn't understand what tolerances were allowed. Um, his first airplanes were didn't fly very well. His wing shape was not very efficient. His fabric was very loose. But gradually, piece by piece, he then learned. And, and what's interesting, that the last step is learning how to fly. Um, uh, that's <laughs> uh, no small feat. But his first airplane that he built, the S-1 in 1910 was powered by a 15-horsepower motor. Wow. So the intuition uh, that he used, not knowing how much power, but imagine probably many people would say, we need a lot of power because we don't really know what we're doing, and we, but we'll need a lot of power to compensate for all these other things. Mm. That would be what would get you into trouble then. This S-1 aircraft weighed something between six and 800 pounds loaded, 15 horsepower engine and you know the result is quite foreseeable it didn't fly <laughs> yeah. that probably saved his life ah good point because he didn't know what to do but he did spend many months doing high-speed taxi with a tailwheel aircraft a tail dragging aircraft and finally understood that really the only way to keep the tail behind you was to aggressively stomp on that on the earliest you know feeling that your tail was about to wrap around in front of you. And uh, so th this was uh, a learning curve that he, that he used every every single minute of power on was uh, was a learning step for him. Yeah, that's pretty it's pretty fascinating. So, yeah, it 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 is incredible the beginning years uh, the S1, S2, S3 and S4 together accumulated a total flight time of less than five minutes in the air. Gee, he wow. Had, yep. Huh. It, it is. Uh, and so they all ended in some sort of crack up, walked away from everything, 
believe that he did not break a bone in his body uh, throughout his life, which is kind of lucky in a way. I lucky, guess, huh? uh, yeah. But of course, good judgment. Uh, there was one crack up in the S five, which was a flying aircraft, the first aircraft. He actually took off and landed on a flight plan, a local flight, but a flight plan that that he had prearranged and was able to complete per the flight plan. So, but uh, another flights into into that, his engine quit, and he. The only uh, suitable landing spot in front of him was a little railroad yard with maybe 200 feet long with a uh, stone wall at the end. And he literally smashed the landing gear in order to stop the plane. He landed hard. Otherwise, a, a good landing would have put him right into the rock wall. Um, and that, his uh, inspection of the engine revealed a mosquito in the carburetor. My gosh. Yeah, and so and that's what quit the engine, which made him think of the next positive solution to aircraft design was multiple engines, and so that was his uh, a learning experience for him. Crashing his aircraft into a railroad yard was the next step. Will be a multiple engine aircraft, which at the time, nineteen twelve, hmm. no one ever would uh, believe that an aircraft. Uh, with two engines, um, it was well believed that an aircraft over 2,000 pounds was unflyable, completely proven by the fact that large birds like, you know, the emu cannot fly, so large planes won't be able to fly either. Oh, how That's interesting. A scientific fact. Uh, so the naysayers throughout his life, you know, never mind the helicopter, but his airplane career uh, was quite the same. So we can attribute multi-engine airplanes to your grandfather and a mosquito. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. Um, now, wasn't he the designer of the first four-engine airplane? First, well, or the first commercial? clearly the first four-engine aircraft. That's right. Um, and that was the Ilya Mormitz aircraft. They actually went into production in World War II in Russia. They built some, I believe, 85. The numbers are not uh, exact, but it's something like 85 models of the Ilya Mormitz. Every single aircraft was different. Because they were all custom built. They all did, though, have four engines between 150 and 220 horsepower. They all had enclosed cockpits. They had observation platforms. They had simple bombardier sites. Uh, and they were used for reconnaissance and some aerial bombing. Also, the first tail gunner. These aircraft were huge, slow, very juicy targets for the German aircraft. And, um, and of course, completely unprotected from the rear. Hmm, sure. So many, many stories of uh, aircraft barely surviving aerial attacks. One aircraft uh, was so shot up when it returned from a flight over enemy territory that, uh, and it was the static wires, if you know what I mean, were shot out, but right. the flight wires were still intact. When the aircraft stopped its taxi, the wings collapsed. Hmm. Um, that was a shot-up aircraft. Another one was guess, yeah. lost its elevator control, and they were able to maintain attitude by the tail gunner adjusting the location of the center of gravity by moving the tail gunner fore and aft. He was on a trolley to get back to the tail. It was such a small tail huh. uh, space that he would ride back there on a trolley, and they could literally trim the aircraft by moving this 
Isn't that something? Back and forth. <laughs> wow. But uh, they were able to service these engines in flight. Service engines might mean putting fires out, might <laughs> mean tightening up a uh, leaking uh, fuel line, and all of these things happened quite often. Um, you know, think of the technology of an engine design back then. Lock washers, I think, were, you know, a rare, just the machining quality. Hmm. And uh, they were still able to get this type of performance out of these aircraft even back then. So hmm. Interesting. It is. I have a question This concerning, um, the believe it or not, the pronunciation of the word helicopter. I found an article in, hmm. the, in the Seattle Times from recently. Um, that's, uh, that says, uh, Charles Lindbergh, who made the first solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927, right. brought a toy helicopter to his grandson on Bainbridge Island in the early 1970s. And mm-hmm. Eric, who I guess is the son, thanked him for the helicopter, the pronunciation yes. used today. Then it goes on, but Charles Lindbergh, who had long ago collaborated on projects with helicopter pioneer Igor Sikorsky, said, Helicopter, the pronunciation uh, pronunciation he'd heard from the man uh, mm-hmm. many consider to be the father of the modern helicopter. H- had you heard that before? Is that is there any basis for that story, or is that just some folklore? Oh, I think that's that that's um, very very much true. Um, my grandfather had a significant old school Russian accent that he carried with him through his life. He if I may, uh, he pronounced all of the eds on the end of a past uh-huh. tense verb. Uh, discovered uh, how to solve solve the problem of the flying machine in the helicopter. He certainly did say helicopter. Huh, I don't think he was trying to pronounce it in a different way than what was normally, you know, people would use. But he yeah. just had this uh, this very uh, scholarly. European accent that was really captivating. Um, I've listened to him a lot and remember his gentle character as a child, but also listened to the tapes of his speeches. And I actually, I'll send you one too. Um, You can hear a pin drop. Nobody's going to miss a word. He had that quality about him that was every little sentence that he had was well thought out. It was rich in information, and it was just pleasantly delivered. Really an mm. amazing man all the way around in terms of, you know, he was just a great man. He had many other deep interests, an interest in astronomy. Oh. Um, mm. uh, he had a very close, deep interest in religion. He was a highly religious man. He believed wholeheartedly in um, God, the Father, creator of everything, mm-hmm. and that when you die, you do go to heaven. His idea of heaven is best looked at from his idea of earth, and his idea of earth, this is his mystical quality coming out. You don't hear about that much, but that this is a learning place, a stepping stone, if you will, and everybody has an opportunity to take a giant leap on earth mm. and learn a lot about the world and their soul and or or not and um so and then you move on through the cosmos to something else it's an interesting part of his character also yeah fascinating yeah david do you have any questions or or anyone else oh i got lots of questions but (laughs) (laughs) he stole my thunder by talking about my favorite sikorsky airplane 
Which uh, one? The Ilya Murmans. And, and, oh, yeah. And David, why is that your favorite Sikorsky airplane? It just looks cool. If you like World War One airplanes, and from a modeling standpoint, it would be a nightmare to build as a scale model because it's a million miles of rigging and wiring, and it's sort of got a it's it's kind of a weird shape. It's sort of got a boxcar lookish cockpit that's squared off, and the Russians used them as bombers. They were throwing the bombs out the side of the aircraft. It's just one of my all time favorites. Hmm. Between that and the, I like the S forty two, which is the the fly the uh, the Clipper, the Pan Am Clipper. Very significant I, machine, yes. So I I like the Sikorsky airplanes even more than the Sikorsky helicopters. The I'm, the Sikorsky airplanes are cool. There's a lot of people who do history. I mean, who know about Sikorsky's other lives building airplanes, but most of most people I don't think realize. The aviation career he had before mm-hmm. the helicopter career, and I to this day I still love watching that series of films where he's flying around in the VS three hundred, and they're putting in mail packages in this little wicker basket that looks like it came off of a bicycle on the front <laughs> of the VS three hundred that he's, and then he goes flying off on the pontoons. Yeah. It's really kind of neat that Igor that you you are a float plane man because. He had a significant career building aircraft that landed on water, helicopters and airplanes. Correct. You're absolutely right. Even maybe you don't know the Ilya Mormonets, which in the height of their production reached over 22,000 pounds. Not a small aircraft. World War One, reminding. But going back to the boxy look, they were actually built in a railroad car factory. Big building, hmm. a lot of workers who knew how to handle wood and get stuff together. And so, yeah, they had – it was a railroad car, a lot lighter, I think, but on on wings. Really cool aircraft. And then, yeah, I'm very uh, – I, I, to me, uh, float flying is the apex for me. I feel the closest I think that I could ever feel. I feel the closest at this point to my grandfather when I'm taking off on – some new body of water and it's, you know, heads up flying. And he had to do that all the time. He's flying these Ilya Mormons off of potato fields in Russia, not runways back then. And he had, he had to have the same concerns and the same interests. And then of course, the same joy when a flight is going well that I feel. So I'm, I feel really, really close to him. Hmm. Certainly when I'm in the air. Though my, my one real question is, why did he insist the pilot fly a helicopter on the right-hand side of the aircraft? Uh, it's actually a great question, and it's a pretty simple answer, and it has to do with the stick and the collective. The stick reacts in the helicopter just like flying a plane. When you're flying in forward flight, the stick does all that, and most pilots in fixed-wing aircraft flying the stick with their right hand. That's where their best dexterity is. They held on to that principle. The left hand was then used for the collective pitch, which has a lot of machinations going on there and RPM and power settings and, and, uh, and collective. In the early helicopters, there was only one collective pitch. So that had to be in between the two seats, which puts the pilot on the right side. Interesting. 
Yeah. I, I always wondered if it in rotary wing, did it have something to do with the way the torque would move the aircraft that would make it that you would have the best or the most predominant uh, ability to see the route of flight left or right because of the way the airplane is going to naturally yaw from the right? Is that is there anything to that? The rotation of the you know the rotor and then the torque that you get. You, you know, if you fly any high torque aircraft, it's going to uh, favor one side or the other. Was there anything to that? Sure. I don't think so. Uh, could be certainly. But I think the primary reason was they, they're trying to keep these things as simple as possible. It's the most complicated flying machine except for the you know, space shuttle. There's just tenfold the moving parts. Trying to keep it simple, one collective pitch was where they wanted to begin. And that, of course, had to be flown from both sides. But um, I think the control characteristics, there's, you know, there's the whole gyroscopic effects that are going on mm-hmm. um, that, of course, have to be dealt with as a pilot and dealt with as a designer. And that collective pitch didn't start out down below on the left of the pilot. It had a number of different um, locations until they finally settled on that. And they had to build numerous models just to get the ergonomics correct on that. They didn't, you know, no one ever built a helicopter cockpit before either. So uh, there was, uh, there's a great photo actually uh, of the VS 300, which is the first uh, the first successful Sikorsky helicopter, and it's in the manufacturing facility, and it's under the wing of the largest Sikorsky flying boat, the S-44. And, you know, this is a, oh, geez, I don't think that the VS-300 had a uh, empty weight of over 1,000 pounds. It was a light aircraft. Maybe it was 1,500 pounds, about what my Skyhawk is. And, and next to this, 4,400 horsepower S44 monsters flying machine. Uh, it's a neat, you know, crossover into history. Uh, you know, from the tried and true, old and hi- old and big and new. And as you can imagine, these workers in the plant, all of whom wondering what Sikorsky's folly is in the corner there. Um, you know, from the perspective of somebody who'd never seen a helicopter before and never seen that fly. And uh, then to see all this manpower going into it, you know, it's an interesting piece of history just to think of what everybody was going through in their minds. What would you say, Igor, was his biggest success and his biggest failure? Those are great questions, David. Um, Boy, the success from a technical standpoint certainly was large. Proving to people large airplanes would fly proving to people that commercial aviation was worthwhile. Um, he started building big airplanes before commercial aviation was really a normal thing. And, and then, of course, the helicopter. There were just three significant, and I don't think I could put, for him, I don't think I could put one over the other. He lived a dream that came to fruition three times over, and even lived to see it continue on. He's literally alive when when Neil Armstrong took a step on the moon. Hmm. Uh, I think he was about hmm. six inches away from the TV because his eyes were failing him. He did meet Neil Armstrong after he came back. And it was to be a part of that whole span of aviation history and to be a significant part of that and to build machines that saved people's lives, I think, was a really meaningful and a very satisfying part of his life. He, his dreams came true for him, and 
so many other people benefited from that. And wasn't his dream for the helicopter to be, a, you know, a device that, that would save people's lives? I mean, he thought of that yeah. from the beginning, correct? I mean, it wasn't a, a matter of, uh, you know, being enamored with just, you know, creating a helicopter for the sake of creating a, a helicopter. But he envisioned it as being an aircraft that, that could be used in ways that others could not be used for the benefit of of, of all of us. That's right. He had a wonderful little quote he would say when a man is in trouble and nothing can reach him an airplane can come by and he can throw flowers on him and that's about all (laughs) but the helicopter can do real work and help a man who's in trouble and do a number of and he had another wonderful quote where again naysayers you know some noted uh aviation designer you know at uh meeting with him, said, uh, Mr. Sikorsky, you're building this helicopter. Do you know when it's going to be faster than the airplane? And he said, yes, I know that. The answer is never. Well, do you know when it's going to be able to carry more load than the airplane? Yes, I know that. Never. And Hmm. Well, when's the helicopter going to be more efficient than the airplane? Do you know that? Yes, I know the answer to that. It'll never be more efficient, he said. But the helicopter will do a number of jobs which no airplane can do and which nothing else can do. And he, so he saw that niche. And you're right, his vision of it as a life-saving device was, I think, a very important, very important part of, um, of his feeling of success. And uh, he would meet, actually, with... Uh, any pilot, crew member, or person who was saved in a helicopter who wanted to express thanks to my grandfather, uh, he would always take time in his office to meet with them and hear the story of, of that life-saving wow. mission. That says a lot right there. Yeah. Says a, says a lot about the man. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic, Igor. We'd really like to thank you for joining us. I, I just want to mention that uh, folks can find the website for the Bradford Camps at oh, thank you. www.bradfordcamps.com. We'll put that in the show notes, of course. And, you know, having having visited the camp, I have to say that, you know, forget aviation and history as a, you know, idyllic place to, to go and have a vacation, you know, with your family or, or otherwise. It's uh, the, the North Maine woods are, are beautiful. Uh, the camp is fantastic, uh, along with, we should mention also, Igor, your wife, Karen. Right. Who, uh, yep, the, two, the two of you run the camp. And it's, yeah. it's just a, it's a, it's a fantastic experience. And then on top of that, just imagine all that and then spending three days with Igor having conversations like we've just had, but also with, with the, uh, the, 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 the memorabilia you have, the artifacts, the, the films, right. the, uh, uh, you know, all, all of that is is just fantastic. I think that the the one thing I don't know why, but the one thing I remembered kind of the most was uh, you know holding in my hands uh, the state of Connecticut helicopter pilot license number one issued hmm. to Igor Sikorsky. Right, that was so yep. cool. Yep, and uh, I don't have this one, but he he was issued helicopter pilot. License number 60, not, excuse me, um, in 1910, he was issued airplane pilots license number 62. He was the 62, 62nd person in the world to receive a airplane license from uh, the Federation Aeronautique. 
of France. That's where all airplane licenses were. That's a Smithsonian Institute artifact uh. now. But it would be a pleasure to have you again up there, Max. And uh, anybody else who's listening, we really enjoy what we do. And uh, we seem to have something pretty special up there. And thank you for having me on your show. It is. Well, it's been a real pleasure to have you. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Fascinating. Very nice. Thank you, Chris and David and Dan. It's very nice to meet you and hope to see you up there sometime. Thank you for listening to this Airplane Geeks replay of our conversation with Igor Sikorsky III in episode 144. Again, you can find the Bradford Camps at bradfordcamps.com and also look for their YouTube channel. Please visit airplanegeeks.com for show notes, where to find us on social media, how you can learn more about us, and even make a donation to help support this show. And of course, you can reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. And if you'd like to join our Slack listener team or our Discord server, write to us at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com and we'll send you an invitation. So please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast.